Well, you can go ahead and open your Bibles or access your digital device to Mark 6:45. This is the last message in the gospel according to Mark because God willing, next Sunday will be my last uh, Sunday as your interim pastor. And so I'm going to bring a special practical message next week. The title of the message is How to Welcome Pastor uh, Andre Abair to Moberly Baptist Church. I'm going to talk to you about the do's and the don'ts. And of course, I'm speaking from experience of almost 50 years of being a pastor myself. So come and be ready to take notes on how to welcome your new pastor and his family. Jesus says, don't be afraid. And some of you may need to hear that message today because all of us struggle with some kinds of fear, and sometimes it is irrational fear. The National Institute for Mental Health has listed the top five fears. This is 2021. Uh, Number one fear, believe it or not, is public speaking. (laughs) Number two fear is fear of dying. So Jerry Seinfeld has talked about that, and he says, Just think, if you're at a funeral giving a eulogy, you'd rather be in the casket. (laughs) Rounding out the top five, fear of snakes. My wife sure has that one. Fear of flying. A lot of people are afraid to fly. And then number five, fear of closed spaces or claustrophobia. Now, for many years, I had a friend, John Bisogno, who was a longtime pastor of First Baptist Church, Houston. He went to heaven about three years ago. And, you know, John Bazzano was afraid to fly. He had a, a, just a fear of flying. And so he usually would take uh, the bus when he was going somewhere to preach. And so one day he was in Houston at the bus depot, going to get some uh, bus tickets. And the ticket agent said, well, you know, it'd be a whole lot quicker if you would fly. And he said, oh, I'm afraid to fly. Then she recognized who he was. She said, aren't you that preacher? And you're afraid to fly. I can't believe that because God says, I will be with you always. John Mazzano said, no, he never said that. What God actually said was, lo, I'm with you always. (laughs) So he says, I'm staying low. We come to one of my favorite miracles, Jesus walking on the water. And God willing, three weeks from today, I'll be there with a group right on the same shore of Lake Gennesaret. And I always love to just look out across the water and think about Jesus walking on the surface of the water. And, you know, you think, well, the disciples, they must have been amazed by that. No, they were terrified. They were afraid when they saw Jesus on the water. Let's read about it here. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 45. You're welcome to stand with me if you're able and willing as we read this. I told you when we began this series that the key word throughout the gospel of Mark is the word immediately. And so here it is. We start with that. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida. Now, that's on the north part of the lake. While he dismissed the crowd, after he said goodbye to them, he went away to the mountain to pray. Well into the night, the boat was in the middle of the sea. Now, take note of that, right in the middle. And he was alone on the land. He saw them straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Very early in the morning, he came toward them walking on the sea, and he wanted to pass by them. When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, there's our word again, he spoke with them, and he said, have courage. 
It is I, and here are the three words God has for you today, don't be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. They were completely astounded because they had not understood about the loaves, the feeding of the multitude. Instead, their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the shore of Gennesaret and anchored there. Let's pray together. Father, I know there's a lot of scary things in this world, and if there's anyone who's trying to struggle and battle against irrational fear, I pray that they'll hear your word of assurance today where you will speak to their hearts and say, don't be afraid. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks. You may be seated. You know, there are some things we should fear. I mean, you should fear great white sharks. You should fear, you know, lions on the loose. But, you know, there are irrational fears that, that paralyze us. And so maybe you're dealing with that. It's a very basic human emotion. So I want to start with the basics. If you looked up in a dictionary, the word fear, here's the classical definition. A feeling of agitation and anxiety caused by the threat of danger. So many, many times in the Bible, God says, don't be afraid. Now, we're going to talk about this miracle by dividing it up into three scenes or three locations of Jesus. Scene number one, we see Jesus praying on the mountain. He puts them on the boat, sends them out at nighttime, knowing that they're going to have trouble, and he goes up to the mountain to pray. And while he's praying on the mountain, he sees them out there and the Bible says they were halfway across, middle part of the lake. Now, Lake Gennesaret, lowest freshwater lake on planet Earth, 600 feet below sea level. Beautiful, beautiful lake, surrounded by hills. Uh, it's seven miles wide at the widest point, and it's 14 miles long at the, the longest point. So they were about three and a half miles out, and Jesus saw them. Now, I think probably it was supernatural vision because it was nighttime, and they were a long way away. But I got to thinking about this. Have you ever noticed that when you're halfway through a challenge or halfway through a treatment or halfway through anything, that's always the toughest part? Because when you just get started on something, you know, you're kind of excited about the new challenge. And when you finish it, yay, I'm finished with it. But right in the middle, stuck in the middle, that's the hardest point. For many years in Tyler, I would run in the Susan Coleman Race for the Cure 5K. And you may be surprised to know that on several occasions, I was leading that 5K race for a few steps right at the beginning. Because, <laughs> I mean, I would take off. I was at the front. I'd take off, and I'd leave everybody behind me for maybe about 50 yards. And if you've ever run a race of any length, you know that when you get to the middle of the race, that's when it's really tough. It's like... I don't know if I can finish. You hit the wall, they say, and it's really, really tough. But then when you get to the finish line, they got all the people lining, you know, the way, and they're cheering for you, even though you may be coming in 200th in, in place. They're cheering for you, so you find that last burst of energy and speed to sprint across the finish line. That's the way problems are in life, challenges are in life. And some of you right now might be halfway through a great challenge in your life. Well, I have a life lesson for you today, and here's the life lesson. Jesus sees me and you and prays for me and you in my most difficult times. Now, just imagine Jesus on the mountain 
seeing those disciples struggling, and he's praying for them. I want you to know the same Jesus sees you where you are, even in your most difficult times of life, and he is praying for you. You know, it's amazing. We can really only pay attention to one person at a time, but God has the ability to to just really know what's going on in the lives of every single person on the planet. Now, according to Google, uh, on Friday, there are about 7.78 billion people on planet Earth. That's a lot of people. But do you know our Creator God is able to look into the hearts and souls of every single one of those people, and He knows what's going on in every person's life, including my life, including your life. I heard a funny story about a Catholic school where the, they were at the, in the lunchroom and there was a pile of apples there and they were going down the line and one of the nuns had put a sign by the apples that said, take one apple only. God is watching. A little ways down on the line, there was a pile of cookies and some student had scribbled a note and said, get all the cookies you want. God is watching the apples. <laughs> well, the truth is that God can watch the apples and the cookies, and he can watch what's going on in your life as well. Now, you know, you may go for a period of time during any given day, and maybe you don't think about God or think about Jesus, but did you know the Bible says that God's thoughts of you, you may not be thinking about him, he's thinking about you. You may not be able to see him sometimes, but he can always see you. Psalm 139, verse 17, how precious are your thoughts for me, O God? Were I to number them, they would be greater than the sands on the seashore. For many, many years, my wife and I have been traveling down to the Gulf Coast, uh, to Panama City Beach, in the last 30 years or so to Destin, and God willing, a couple of months, we'll be there again. And I love to go out on the beach, and we don't get into the water that much anymore. But when we're laying out on the sand or sitting in the sand reading and just uh, spending time together, sometimes I'll pick up a handful of sand and just let it stream through my fingers, that sugar white sand. And every time I do that, I think of this verse. You know, I, there's no way I could count the number of grains of sand in my hand. And God says, take all the sand on all the seashores in all the planet, and that's how often I am thinking about you. So see, God sees us, He cares, and He prays for us. You know, I love the dialogue between Jesus and Simon Peter the night before the cross. Luke records it in Luke 22. Only in Luke are these words recorded. This is after Jesus has said, tonight, one of you is going to betray me, and all of you are going to flee and run. Peter says, not me, Lord. Uh, I'll, I'll die for you. And this is what Jesus says, Simon, Simon. Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. Now, if you're under the age of 40, you probably don't know what a sifter is. But any of you folks that used to bake or been around baking, I can remember my grandmother had a flour sifter. How many of you have ever used a flour sifter? You crank a little crank, and it turns a little bar, and it brings out all the lumps and the impurities in the flour uh, because back then they didn't have highly refined flour like we do today. And the light flour would fall down through the screen on whatever you were baking. You know, that's exactly what Satan was doing to Simon Peter and what he does to us. He sifts us. 
He tries to bring out our imperfections, our impurities. And so that night, Satan was going to try to have Peter to sift him as wheat. Here's what Jesus said. But Peter, I have prayed for you. He didn't say, I have prayed that you won't be tempted. He says, I prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And when you have repented, strengthen the brothers. Now, what does that mean? Well, we know what happened that night. Peter denied, not once, not twice, but three times, I don't know this Jesus. And then the rooster crowed. And the Bible says that Peter went out and wept bitterly. He was repenting of his sin. And then the next time we see him, he's in the upper room with the disciples. He didn't desert the disciples like Judas did. So did his faith fail that night? No, it didn't. He failed, and we often stumble and fail, but his faith didn't fail. His faith was strong because Jesus was praying for him. Let me ask you a question. If you knew at any moment of temptation that Jesus was praying for you, would it help you? I mean, guys, if you're tempted to do porn, if you knew Jesus was standing right there praying for you, would it help you resist temptation? Sure it would. If you're tempted to cheat on your expense report or on your income tax return, if you knew Jesus was standing right there praying for you, would it help? Absolutely. If you're about to pass on some, uh, you know, malicious bit of gossip to somebody and you knew Jesus was standing there praying for you not to sin, would it help? Absolutely. Well, the absolute truth today is that Jesus right now is praying for each one of us. It's right there in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives, here it is, to intercede for them. You know, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father right now, and he's praying for me, and he's praying for you. He's watching over us. Many of you have heard of Ethel Waters. She was famous for singing at many of the Billy Graham crusades, but, but her life was really rough when she started out. She was born as a result of incest and rape, and for much of her life, she was a singer in nightclubs and bars and even made some predominantly African-American movies like in the 30s. But then she got saved. She came to know the Lord. She spent the rest of her life singing for Jesus. And the one song that became famous for her and was the title of her autobiography was His Eye is on the Sparrow. Listen to these words again. Why should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart feel lonely and long for heaven and home? When Jesus is my portion, a constant friend is he. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he watches me. And you can know he's watching you too. Number two, Jesus walking on the water. Walking on the water. Now, this is an amazing miracle. It's probably 3 or 4 a.m. in the morning. And Jesus is walking across the water, and it's actually going to pass by them. But then they see him, and they yell out. There are a number of artists who painted this picture. Uh, Amadie Varin is a French artist who painted this picture in 1860. It's in the British Museum, if you're ever over in London. And I think it's probably a pretty good rendition because it looks almost ghost-like. If you saw something like that in the middle of the night, it would probably scare you like it scared the disciples. 
Now, how was Jesus able to walk on water? I had somebody tell me one time, Pastor, I've walked on water. It was just ice, but I walked on water. Jesus walked on, on liquid H2O. How could he do that? Well, first of all, he's the creator of everything. And if you remember your basic science, you know, all matter is comprised of molecules. And these molecules form elements and they, and they, they cohere and adhere together. You know, and molecules are made up of atoms, and atoms are made up of protons, neutrons, electrons, croutons. No, no, just want to see if you were paying attention. Now, let me ask you a basic physics question. What in the world or what in the universe keeps these molecules together? I mean, why doesn't this table just explode? Why, why does our body just explode? You know, why doesn't this wood and this platform just explode? What keeps those molecules cohering or adhering to one another? Well, you, you read some physics texts, and, you know, they have a name for this, and it's called, it's kind of funny, they call it the strong force. <laughs> the strong force, that's really the scientific name for it. But I, I know who the strong force is. His name is Jesus. Because look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things. And in him, here it is, all things hold together. It's the word sunestomy, which means adhere, cohere. Jesus, you might say, is the super glue of the universe. He is the reason all things hold together. And he can hold the universe together, and he can hold your marriage together, and he can hold your family together, and he can hold your church together. He is the creator, and by him all things hold together. So here's the life lesson. Jesus walks into the middle of my greatest fears, and he says, it's just me. Don't be afraid. Now, there's something strange about this miracle. Maybe you noticed it. It said that they still didn't understand the miracle of the loaves. I mean, you know what had happened that afternoon? They had watched as Jesus had taken minnows and muffins and multiplied that to, to feed 15,000 people, 5,000 men, not counting women and children. And don't you think when they saw something like that, that their hearts and minds would be convinced this guy He's a miracle worker. But still that night, it says their hearts were hardened. That's why Jesus had to walk into their fear and say, hey, it's just me. Don't be afraid. And that's exactly what Jesus says to us. If you listen to that voice, he says, it's me. Don't be afraid. I read one time that the word do not fear, the phrase do not fear, appears 365 times in the Bible, one for every day of the year. But that's not true because it appears many, many more Times than that. You know how many times God says to you, don't be afraid? Every time that you experience fear, that's when God says, don't be afraid. You know, there was a custom among some of the African American tribes, I'm sorry, the American, Native American tribes, what used to be called Indians when that was culturally correct, that when a young boy would turn 13 as a, as a rite of passage to manhood, 
He would be taken blindfolded out into the middle of the forest, and then the blindfold would be removed, and he would be left there all alone with nothing but a spear. And there's one particular story about one young man that he was so deathly afraid. You know, he didn't sleep at all that night. Every time he heard a twig snap or a bush rustle, he he thought it might be a wolf or a bear or something worse. And so it was an agonizing night. And it seemed to stretch on forever, and finally the sun came up. And he, he could begin to make out some of the trees, and he could make out the trail. And then to his surprise, he looked and saw movement. And there, only about three trees away from him, he saw the figure of his father standing there with a longbow. His father had been there all night. And the brave young brave thought, wow, if I had only known that my father was here, I could have slept peacefully. And you know, the same is true with us. We can rest in the knowledge that God is always with us and that he will never leave us nor forsake us. So here's the third scene, and it's Jesus calming the storm. You know, there's a lot of funny novels that start, it was a dark and stormy night. Well, this really was a dark and stormy night. And these disciples were afraid. They were afraid the water was going to get in the boat. They were going to get in the water. The water was going to get in them, and they were going to drown. So they were terrified. And so I've, I've said this before, but sometimes fear is even worse than the problem that you're afraid of because fear can make you do dumb and dangerous things that you wouldn't ordinarily do. True story from the news in Barcelona, Spain, a number of years ago. Uh, this Spanish guy was hitchhiking beside the road, and this pickup truck picked him up. And he had to get in the back of the pickup truck. And they were delivering an empty coffin casket to a funeral home. Well, he's in the back of this truck as they're going down the road. And it starts to rain. So he just does smart thing. He opens the lid of the casket, climbs in. So he's not getting wet from the rain. Meanwhile, the truck stops and picks up two more hitchhikers. And they get in the back of the truck. They're riding along for a while. And finally, it stops raining. And they see the lid of that coffin come up, and the guy sits up and says, Oh, good, it's not raining anymore. Those guys immediately jumped out of the truck while it's still going at a high speed, and they were both injured terribly because fear will make you do dumb, dangerous things. All right, here's the life lesson that we learned from this. Any problem over my head is already under his feet. Jesus the thing they were afraid of was the water drowning him, and, and Jesus comes walking on top of the water. And anything that you're afraid may be over your head that you can't handle, the Bible says it's already under his feet. You say, does the Bible say that? Absolutely. Look at Ephesians 1, 20 and 24. He, that is God, raised him, Jesus, from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. Remember that phrase, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. And God has placed all things under his feet. So that problem that you're afraid of right now, that challenge, it's, it's under the feet of Jesus. He's on top of it, which means he has authority over it. So some of you may be thinking, well, pastor, that's good, but uh, he's seated in the heavenly realms and here I am. I'm down here in the, in the dirty, dusty earth here. No, if you understand where you are spiritually, it can change your perspective. 
Because in the next chapter in Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 5, we read this. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now, physically, where am I? Well, I'm here in the worship center, Marley Baptist Church, Longview, Texas. But did you know the Bible says my spiritual perspective is with Christ in the heavenlies? So here's the point I'm trying to make. You can look at life and reality from the perspective of earth, and it looks scary. It looks awful. Or you can choose to look at challenges, life, reality from the perspective of heaven. And when you choose to look at problems and challenges and reality from heaven's perspective, those problems don't seem nearly as big. They're not nearly as scary. Because, see, your altitude determines your attitude. Uh, So let me illustrate that by talking about something that happened when I was in college. When I was in college, I I first got my pilot's license, private pilot's license, and I flew for 35 or 40 years before I gave it up and let American do the flying for me. But this was when I was taking my first flight training. My instructor, he was training me in a tiny little Cessna 150, which only has two seats, about like a 150-horsepower engine. I mean, and this guy was a big guy. I mean, he was about two biscuits past 260. And we were stuffed in that little cockpit, and that engine would just whine going down the runway. And then finally, with that big load, it would gradually start to climb out. And so I probably had eight or ten dual instruction hours when he said, okay, it's time for you to solo. And for everybody that ever gets your pilot's license, a solo is the greatest thing that ever happens in all your flying career. So he gets out. I taxi into the runway, pushing the power. And that thing takes off like a homesick angel with, with him out of there. So what we... what training pilots in training do we have to practice landing and taking off and that's called touch and goes you fly the pattern land don't stop just keep going take off again fly the pattern do it over and over again called touch and goes so one afternoon not long after I had soloed I was just there practicing touch and goes and when you're on the downwind leg it's kind of boring because you just have to wait to get to the end of the runway I looked down and there was a highway major highway highway 14 in Alabama And there was a big log truck, 18-wheeler log truck that was really creeping along. And there's a little white car behind it that was wanting to pass it. It kept pulling out, pulling back, pulling out, pulling back. Now, it wasn't a hill. It wasn't double yellow stripes or anything. But this car was afraid right behind that big old huge 18-wheeler. I'm up at 1,500 feet. I look down. I say, you know what? There's not a car for two miles coming. Hey, buddy, it's clear. You can pass that log truck. But there's no way I could tell him that. But guess what? If he had been looking at things from my perspective, he wouldn't have seen a big 18-wheeler with logs hanging off of it. He would have seen nothing but open roads ahead. Now, my friends, you can look at life from this perspective, and it looks scary. It looks like an 18-wheeler full of ragged logs. Or you can choose to look at everything from heaven's perspective, and it's not nearly It's scary. It's your choice. You know, I I thought my dad was a hero, and he was a hero. He was part of that greatest generation, fought in World War II, fought for the Navy. He was a hero. He really was a hero because when his ship was sunk in the battle to liberate the Philippines, it was sinking on fire. The water was on fire, and my dad took off his life vest 
and gave it to an injured sailor and put the injured sailor in the water. Then he dove into the burning water and was barely able to make it to a life raft. And, but he sustained injuries and was in the hospital for a while. But he was a hero. I thought he could do anything. And so growing up, I thought my dad was the most brave man I knew, and he was. My mother, by the way, she was a registered nurse, and so sometimes she had to work an evening shift at the local hospital. And any time my mother was gone, all three of us kids would pile in bed with my dad. A fun night. Probably wasn't fun for him, but it's fun for us. One night, we're sleeping with our dad. I was probably in the first grade. And in the middle of the night, the screen door of our front door opens, and somebody's wiggling the door handle. And I woke up, and it kind of scared me. Otherwise, I, if I had been alone, I, I really would have been scared. But my dad was sitting up, and he was listening. And I could tell he was paying attention. And I thought, well, you know what? Everything's okay because my dad's here. He's, a, he's the strongest man in the world. And I just laid back down, and I went to sleep. I slept soundly that night because I knew my dad is here. So I, I slept. So my friend, if you ever wake up in the middle of the night worried or afraid or something, guess what? I got a promise for you that the Bible says he who watches over Israel and you never slumbers, never sleeps. So you might as well sleep soundly because your heavenly father sees what's happening in your life, knows what's happening in your life. And he says, don't be afraid. One final promise, John 16, Jesus said, I have told you these things that in me, not in pills, not in meditation, not in yoga, in me, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. Write it down. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's pray. I know that many of you in this room already know the Lord. You love the Lord. I hope you've received assurance today and confidence not to be afraid, but to trust God. But it could be there's someone in the room or watching on live stream that you don't know the Lord. As I've done for many years, I'd love to lead you in a simple, simple sinner's prayer. You can pray this prayer after me silently, but sincerely. Dear God, I admit that I am a sinner. I'll never be good enough to earn heaven. Thank you, God, for sending Jesus to take my place on the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for my sins. Thank you, Jesus, for paying the price of sin for me. Right now, Jesus, come into my life and take control. I will live for you the rest of my life. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.